1: Something had to be done to deal with this. This was a terrible crossing of the line in terms of our society. The department of the government that should have been doing that, the Civil Rights Division of DOJ, I knew wasn't going to do it. And it's this kind of crazy thing, well, I guess if no one else will, I will.
0: Hi, and welcome to Amicus. Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick and I'm coming to you on this off week because, surprise, the book I've been working on for the past mm, four years is finally here, very nearly here. Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America is available for pre-order now. It will drop on September 20th. One of the things that I note toward the beginning of the book is that at one point, a very, very smart male constitutional law professor asked me why I was wasting my time writing a little pink book about the law. But actually, I think Lady Justice is, by design, a great big pink book about the law. It's almost a romance novel about women and the law and democracy itself. So if you followed my writing and my podcasting through the Trump years and beyond, through the Muslim bans, the Nazi rallies, the violence, the child separation, through Me Too, this whole book is my tribute to the women who held the line, who defended and expanded rights against the odds, who fought for the vulnerable and the invisible, and those who didn't even really register to a reality TV president. And having covered their cases, their battles, and their triumphs, I came to the realization that, well, women plus law equals magic. And one of the chief conjurers of legal magic is my guest today, Roberta Kaplan. She's at the center of the fourth chapter of Lady Justice. And over the writing of this book, she also became pretty central to my life as a A close friend and counsel. Robbie Kaplan is the founding partner of Kaplan Hecker and Fink, LLP. She's probably best known for successfully arguing before the United States Supreme Court on behalf of her client Edie Windsor in United States v. Windsor. That was the landmark case in which the Supreme Court ruled that a key provision of the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, violated the United States Constitution by barring legally married same-sex couples from enjoying the wide-ranging benefits of marriage. That opened the door to the ruling in Obergefell that allowed for same-sex marriage in every state in the country. But today, we are going to be focusing on the high-stakes lawsuit she brought, along with her co-counsel, Karen Dunn, Under the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, against 24 neo-Nazi and white supremacist leaders responsible for organizing the racial and religious-based violence in Charlottesville, Virginia, in August 2017. Robbie called me at home two days after the Nazis terrorized my hometown of Charlottesville. She had an idea for a lawsuit, but she needed plaintiffs. Two days after that, she arrived in town with a small team of litigators, set up a makeshift office, and set to work. I joined Robbie earlier this week at the offices of Kaplan Hecker Fink in the Empire State Building in New York City. Robbie Kaplan, welcome back to Amicus.
1: So good to see you, darling.
0: I can't quite believe this is the first time you and I are talking like on my podcast about Charlottesville, but here we are. Um, you know, I listened to every single day of the trial, as you know, over the phone, because that's how Judge Moon did
1: it. You and Th- a lot of white supremacists. I mean, all the white supremacists
0: <laughs> who are yelling out Nazi slogans. This was, as I just suggested, Robbie, a super hard chapter for me to write because, of course, Charlottesville had been my hometown for 17 years. You, on the other hand, had the experience of Charlottesville that I think probably almost all Americans had, which was watching it on TV. So I wonder if maybe it's a good place to start is describing how you were sitting in this brand new law firm with a whole bunch of baby lawyers watching the events of August 12th unspool on your television.
1: So I've thought about this quite a few times recently, and and I have a much better appreciation today of how crazy I was then. Because when I tell you what happened, you're going to, I know you already think I'm nuts and anyone listening to this is going to think I'm nuts. Kaplan, Hacker & Fink opened officially for business on July 1, 2017. But we didn't have office space for the first month. We were working out of someone who lent us a barn, believe it or not, but it was a nice barn. And we moved into our new office in the Empire State Building, I believe on August 7th. And Charlottesville, of course, happened on August eleventh, 12, 2017. And the next Monday, which had to have been the 14th, I think was our first full kind of official week in the office. We had card tables. We had folding chairs. We had a, three or four laptops. I don't even think we had a bunch of baby lawyers. We had maybe four lawyers and two paralegals, five lawyers, but we were very, very small outfit. On that first Monday after Charlottesville, there was a lot of press about what had happened. And since I wanted the firm to be very dedicated to doing legal work in the public interest, I thought naively, okay, during lunchtime, let's set up a TV or set up a laptop screen, I think it was, and watch... The coverage and more we'll order and lunch for everyone. I'm pretty sure it was pizza. That was stupid because it wasn't really a pizza watching activity, obviously. And I remember as we were watching the coverage, one of the paralegals, one of the really key people who worked at the beginning of this case, ran out of the room in tears because it was so horrible to watch. Um, as I watched it, I was horrified at the idea that truly militant, radical white supremacists and anti-Semites could openly march on the streets of an American city. That didn't surprise me because I know we have the First Amendment, but could openly march on the streets of an American city with weapons, intending to cause violence and then committing violence. To me, that was shocking. I didn't think that's what this country stood for. I thought something needed to be done about it. And I was very worried at the time, because at the time the Attorney General was Jeff Sessions from Alabama, not a man with a great record on civil rights. And I didn't think that the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, which should have been doing something about this, would do anything. And it turns out I was right about that. So I called you. I had this idea, we'll bring a case. But I know to bring a civil case, you need to have plaintiffs. I mean, I normally call you for legal advice. I wasn't calling you for legal advice that day. I was calling you because I knew you were in Charlottesville. And you had just
0: left Paul Weiss. You had founded this new firm. Taking this on was a pretty risky, like, it's a kind of crazy theory. You're dusting off the KKK Act. Everybody's on the other side, even our side, because free speech. So talk a little bit about, A, the theory of how you wanted to get past these hurdles of free speech, which I should note, the judge in Charlottesville, who refused to move this to a safer site, did it entirely on free speech grounds. He analyzed that case as though it was... The Skokie case, which was a landmark First Amendment case that allowed Nazis to march peacefully in Skokie, Illinois. He's like, this is speech, and I don't, I'm not even going to take into account that they're carrying weapons. This whole thing was kind of crazy. Even your side wasn't on your side. So maybe talk through the theory of- My side wasn't on my
1: side in Windsor. It's Percy.
0: Yeah, no, your side is never on your side. (laughs) But I, talk through just briefly, if you would, what your theory was- And why it is that you felt like this fledgling firm
1: could do this kind of bonkers thing. So it was very clear from watching the reports and kind of the horrible video footage of those two days that the violence that occurred in Charlottesville was not an accident. It wasn't some kind of spontaneous outburst of anger that resulted in violence it was clearly what these people wanted to happen. That was clear even right after, just from watching the footage and from seeing what happened and kind of James Fields' role and his commitment to these ideals and his commitment to Vanguard America.
0: James Fields is the guy
1: who hits Heather higher. Correct, who drove his yes. car on Saturday afternoon into the crowd. But then we get a lucky break, and it was only a couple weeks later, as I recall. Again, I need to do a cron so I have these dates at the tip of my fingers. But we got a lucky break, which is someone, and I to this day I don't know who managed to get into the Discord servers that were used by the groups and individuals, the leaders of the so-called rally, to plan the rally. It's very unusual to get anything like that. Normally, you only get something like that in Discovery, and even then, it's hard to get, especially in this case with the kind of document destruction that existed. But those Discord messages gave us a roadmap into what happened and confirmed my gut reaction that this was something that was planned, because... They basically took over, they created a Charlottesville 2.0 server, and they had different message boards, message groups within the server dedicated to topics like weaponry, self-defense, transportation, uniforms, leadership, you name it. And in those Discord messages, they planned meticulously what was going to happen, and it was very clear that they wanted violence to happen. And so that gave us, I'm not sure to this day that we would have won We would have gotten past a motion to dismiss in this case had we not had those messages. But they put kind of the meat on the bones of our theory and convinced the judge on the motion to dismiss and ultimately the jury that we were right. This wasn't just peaceful protest, free speech, which is protected. This was intentional plans to commit violence, which is not protected.
0: And talk for just a brief minute about what it means to take this century-old statute, the Klan Act, Which I guess was used in the civil rights era too, a couple of times. So, last time it was
1: used successfully in the civil rights era.
0: Talk about what it says and talk about maybe what it means to take this really kind of archaic statute and repurpose it for Discord chats and guys who are talking to each other on the
1: internet. So, thanks to you who introduced us to groups who got us to place, we had plaintiffs, we had the facts as a result of the Discord leak. But we needed a legal theory. And you're right. That's what was kind of hard here. Because first of all, we have strong First Amendment rights in this country. And second of all, these kinds of racially motivated conspiracies to commit violence don't, well, I don't want to say that today. I guess today they do happen that much. But at least in my lifetime, prior to the election of Donald Trump, they hadn't happened all that often. So there wasn't a lot of legal precedent to rely on. And what we ended up having to do is to go back to a statute called the KKK Act of 1871. The purpose of the statute is exactly what the title says it is. It was passed by the Reconstructionist Congress to prevent, unfortunately not successfully, the creation and rise of the KKK in the Deep South. And the efforts by Klan members in the South to effectively re-enslave the newly freed slaves, which again, in certain ways they did obviously under Jim Crow. But they saw back in 1871 this was happening And Congress tried to stop it. They passed this law. And it's one of the few civil rights laws that applies to private conduct as opposed to government conduct. And it says that if private people get together and form a conspiracy in order to commit racially motivated violence, then that violates this statute. And it has criminal aspects and civil aspects. We obviously use the civil aspects. What we had to convert here, I guess, into our world today is that when the statute was passed, obviously what they had in mind were a bunch of men wearing white robes and hoods, meeting in the pine woods in Alabama or Mississippi or wherever, and and, pl- shit down. And, ber- and plotting to lynch people or burn yeah. shit down. Today, the modern equivalent of that was these guys having effectively Discord hashtags, which may or may not reveal their identity. Some of them did, many of them didn't. Talking to each other on Discord and doing the same thing, but doing it not only just not localized in a force, but nationwide. These guys were all over the country. And having a method of communicating that was far more secretive than hoods and robes, they just had hashtags on Discord. And to this day, while most of the people who were planning this, we have been able to identify by their hashtag on Discord, even today we don't know all of them.
0: And maybe I'll just pause to say, because I'm going to forget to say it later, that this becomes actually a template for a lot of the January 6th prosecutions and investigations, because it's the same MO, right? It's people plotting things on secret servers, saying the quiet parts out loud on the internet, and then trying to unravel that. I mean, this does become something that's useful afterwards.
1: Correct. I mean, there's another section of the KKK Act, similar to ours, and really passed for the same purpose, that says you can't have a secret conspiracy to basically stop the operation of government. <laughs> again, back then, they were worried about former secessionists. Again, it seems incredibly similar to today, but former Confederates trying to overturn the democracy yet again. And sadly, the same principle is applicable today.
0: We will be back with more from Robbie Kaplan about holding white supremacists accountable and the through lines of Lady Justice after these messages from our sponsors. So you bring in Karen Dunn. One of the things that I love about this story is it's just you and Karen against the world and all these white supremacists and Nazis. Talk a little bit about bringing in Karen, but I also am really focused because there's a line in the book that haunts me where she says to you, and Karen is another one of those super litigators and like comes out of Pizzagate, so certainly knows from crazy, but she says to you, I can only do this if my kids are safe.
1: Yeah, so I knew, again, we had maybe six lawyers at the time, maybe. Even I was smart enough at that point to realize this was going to be a huge endeavor. I didn't realize then how big it was going to become, but I realized it was more than we could take on uh, on our own. So I knew Karen. We had mutual friends. One of my partners, Gabrielle Tenzer, worked with her for Senator Clinton when she was senator, so I certainly was well aware of her as a lawyer. And I knew both that she'd been a prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia and two, maybe more relevant here, as you said, that she had worked on the Pizzagate matter, where those kind of crazy QAnon-type people came up with this conspiracy that a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., was somehow, it was like it's like Sweeney Todd, was somehow using... The basement
0: that didn't
1: exist. Yeah, using a basement and using dead children as part of a conspiracy with Hillary Clinton. I mean, it's just utter craziness. But I know, I know Karen had worked on that, and I knew that case, like our case... We had a lot of focus on the intersection between criminal and civil law and the First Amendment and when things could be illegal and when they were protected. So I called her up out of the blue. And I said, hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> I'm Robbie Kaplan. I've done this a couple times in my career. Nice to meet you. I'm Robbie Kaplan. We'd like to bring this case. We'd like you to help. She then was at Boyce Schiller. She hadn't left for Paul Weiss yet. And this is why I need you, because I know you, you have expertise in these things. And she said to me immediately, happy to do it. She was excited, but I'm worried Uh, Karen's got three kids. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my family. I can't do it unless you can promise me that I and my team will have sufficient security. I kind of said, yeah, 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 that will, no problem. I didn't realize then what a huge issue that would become.
0: We're going to get back to that, but I think I want you to answer the question you didn't answer, which was, this was a crazy, risky case you took on. (laughs) You were not going to win this. Nobody thought you were going to win this. People thought you were nuts brand new firm, two powerhouse lawyers. What the hell were you thinking
1: when you jumped into this? You know, most of what I was thinking was something needed to be done. That's really what I was thinking. Something had to be done to deal with this. This was a terrible kind of crossing of the line in terms of our society, in terms of how Americans were willing to conduct themselves and behave. And again, the department of the government that should have been doing that the civil rights division of doj i knew wasn't going to do it and it's this kind of crazy thing well i guess if no one else will i will that's honestly what motivated me it's again it's i'm not defending my sanity because there's no defense of my sanity here
0: No, it will surprise you not at all to hear like this comes up almost in every chapter that some woman says it just needed to be done. And I didn't sit around workshopping it for three months. I just did it. I guess I want to just ask before we talk about the trial specifically what your goals were. And I know there's like a couple of different buckets. I know you wanted to sort of smoke out the funding sources. That was really important. I know you wanted we failed failed to failed on the funding sources because
1: they mostly use Bitcoin and it's just impossible to trace it. And we may be able to trace some of it now that we have the judgments and judgment enforcement. But it's very difficult. You have to be the government with the kind of subpoena power the government has to do that.
0: Okay, but the other buckets are more triumphant, right? You wanted to, first of all, you you wanted to bring some closure and some money damages to people whose lives were irrevocably harmed. Check. Check. And I think you wanted to sort of out some of these guys as kind of juvenile cosplay performance artists who are also really dangerous. Check. Talk a little bit about that, because I think one of the things that really came through in the trial was that they're both galactic juvenile idiots who are seeking attention and also really lethally dangerous.
1: Yeah, I think so. What ultimately became maybe the most important part of this trial, the plaintiffs were obviously the most important, but maybe the second most important part of this trial, was creating a record, a true historical record of what had happened. There's obviously been a lot of journalism written about Charlottesville, and that's all good, but I think what we marshaled in this case was a historical record, a chronological record of who did what, who said what, when, and how they did it, unlike anything that had existed before. And the one thing that became clear is that a lot of these guys kind of were looking for a sense of community. I mean, it, it sounds crazy to even say it, but they were kind of isolated guys who were living in various parts of the country, unsuccessful, jobless, or very menial type jobs, who wanted to feel a sense of brotherhood. And brotherhood is the right term because there are very few women in this, although one woman who was in it became one of our key witnesses at trial. And they, I think these movements, this replacement theory, this idea that white men are being replaced in this country by women, minorities, black people, President Obama, etc., was very appealing to them about because of how they felt about their own lives and their own life prospects. And what was shocking is how quickly that turned to the most shocking and odious forms of racism and anti-Semitism. I mean, the, the thing that shocked me the most, I think, in the case is the openly horrifying things these guys say. A lot of it is about race. But another thing that was quite surprising is even more of it was about Jews. And the way that they openly talked and joked, and people can't see me, but I'm saying joked in quotes, because they say they were joking, they weren't really joking. But the way they talked about they should burn an Auschwitz, and Mein Kampf is the greatest book that's ever written, and need to oven the Jews. And this would just literally come up in almost every communication they had was astounding to me. I don't want to fall into the trap, Robbie,
0: of centering these guys. I want you yeah. to talk about the plaintiffs because we should note, and I didn't note up top, you filed in twenty seventeen.
1: October twenty seventeen. And it's only if that's by the way, guys, just so people know, that is beyond a rocket document. Like the fact yeah. that this happened in August and that we were able to file in October is insane. Yeah. That's like
0: Trump lawyers. That's move super that fast. fast. Yeah.
1: Um, Except for we actually had the facts in the law, right,
0: and also are competent. But all that notwithstanding, it doesn't go to trial until twenty twenty one. Partly because of COVID, partly because of like toilets full of cell phones and I evidence. Think that's correct. Um, but talk about the plaintiffs, because I think it a little bit gets lost yeah. in the narrative about the law and these
1: defendants. So, I think the most the bravest people. I mean, Karen said the thing about security, and, and I realized how right she was, but. To be honest, by far the bravest people in the case were the plaintiffs. We had a couple of trips, including the one that you set up to Charlottesville to meet with people who had been injured physically, all physically, all psychologically, some more physically than others. And when we met with these people, this was back in late August, early September, we said to each and every one of them, look, you know, you may have other cases here that you want to bring. There may be cases... If you were involved on Friday against what happened at the University of Virginia and whether the police were doing their job. If you were just injured on Saturday, there also may be claims against the police department and whether they were really, this is the Charlottesville Police Department, whether they were really paying attention and acting in accordance with the standard of care that one would expect. We would understand why you'd want to bring those cases, but if you bring those cases, you can't be part of our case. And our case is going to take a very long time. (laughs) We knew, we didn't know four years, but we knew it was going to take a very long time. The damages, while we're confident that we will get damages, they're going to be very hard to collect. And that is probably almost certainly true. And so there's not a huge, there's probably not a huge pot of gold at right at the end of the tunnel, and the end of the tunnel's a long way off. And every one of these plaintiffs in our case, who really, and I'm proud of this, really represented the breadth of the community in Charlottesville who was there Those days, Friday and Saturday, each one of them stepped up to do it. And so they range from students. We had a couple students who were there both Friday and Saturday. Natalie Romero, who was our first witness to testify, probably the most prominent. She is an amazingly brave young woman. She has the worst luck in the entire world because she was trapped around the Jefferson statue on campus on Friday night one of the few minority kids who was there, and then she was hit by the car on Saturday and had horrible brain injuries as a result. So they ranged from students at UVA to people in the community who just wanted to show up. One of our plaintiffs had just moved to Charlottesville a few weeks before and just wanted to kind of watch what was happening on Saturday and support his new town, and he, Thomas Baker, was also hit by the car, to people who were friends of Heather Heyer, Marcus, Martin, and Marissa were a then-engaged couple. They were friendly with Heather. Marissa worked with her at the law firm where they both worked. They met up that day. They were there, and while they were murdered the way Heather was, Marcus was able to push Marissa out of the way, and his leg was basically shattered. He will never be able to play sports or do the kinds of things he used to enjoy as, as before that. To Seth Whispelway, I couldn't go through this group without mentioning Seth, who was a minister- a native of Charlottesville, lived his whole life there, who is deeply committed to pacifist ideas and ideals in a way that I have to say I find somewhat amazing, who was knew what was going to happen, had a better sense than the police, frankly, and the town government, was organizing for weeks to show up to protest it, and then was there on Saturday, and we played just really wrenching video of him standing with the other ministers and rabbis and being just rammed through by a crowd of white supremacists.
0: One of the other themes of this book that this trial somehow embodies for me is that it could have been the trial of the century. Everybody could have been watching this. This was the Scopes Monkey Trial for Nazis and white supremacists. It wasn't that, I think it's fair to say. I I think think partly because of the four-year gap and Ahmed Arbery was happening at the same time, Kel Rittenhouse was happening at the same time on TV, yours was not televised. But it does feel like, and I just want to pull on this a little bit, this through line in the book that sometimes there's a lot of women who do extraordinary work that takes years and years. This really was endless toil for you and endless sort of personal threats directed at you it didn't maybe end up to be front page news for 6 months and yet you won is there some i don't i don't know if i want to ask if there's a piece of this that is gender or if there's a piece of this that is the ADHD that characterizes how media covers violence and racism but do you feel satisfied that people know that you were vindicated, that there is a historical record, that everybody now knows that if you show up to a small town with guns and knives and try to terrorize Black people
1: and Jews, you will pay the price? Oh, very good question. So, ironically, (laughs) certain groups know that. So, our plaintiffs know that, for sure. I think the community, I think Charlottesville knows that. I'm not sure that they'll ever find complete peace from what happened, but I think this helps albeit somewhat, and they know that. And then ironically, <laughs> I think a lot of the groups who were involved know it. Certainly the groups who were defendants know it. And while it, there's so many of these groups, it's like whack-a-mole, to use an expression you use all the time, but the groups that we targeted as defendants were not, to the, our best of our knowledge, were not involved in January 6th very much and are not involved so much in the craziness today, at least in an organized way, because they realize there's these huge judgments, they realize we're coming after them, and there is a deterrent impact on them. But I have to be honest, there's a group Vanguard America, they've since renamed and rebranded themselves as Patriot Front, but they're the same old group. Thomas Rousseau, who was one of the leaders of Vanguard and who James Fields, we have a photo of him standing next to on that Saturday afternoon, wearing their uniform of a white polo and khakis. He was not a defendant, he was a third party. And he, to this day, is still active. He's been involved in Boston. He's been active in these white supremacist rallies Thank God there hasn't been a lot of violence, but there was a, an arrest in Idaho that stopped it. So the answer is mixed. Like, I think some people get it. Do the people who should get it the most get it, i.e. the growing white supremacist community? Probably not. Once we have judgments, will our judgment enforcement efforts help? We hope. Long term, as I said before, I think the historical record has been made. But history often gets written years and years after the events happen. So well, I guess we just have to live with that.
0: More from Robbie Kaplan, rock star litigator, and the subject of the fourth chapter of my book, Lady Justice, after this short break. You have an amazing line in here where you're describing being at some pre-trial proceeding, probably someone's deposition. And you're with James Kalenick, who is representing a bunch of the Nazis and has said in his own time some kind of shocking things about Jews. And you're sitting there, like, doing what lawyers do, yucking it up about a Cavs game because (laughs) you're from Cleveland, and what are you going to do? And you're musing in your head. You're like, Karen, sitting here next to me, just wants nothing to do with this. And I feel like I have to just be a lawyer with this guy and chat about sports. And it raises so many questions that I raise elsewhere in the book about how women lawyers feel like they have to comport themselves, and ultimately this is a boys' club, and there are games you play. Nina Perales describes being on Zooms in redistricting cases where everybody's a man, all the lawyers, all the judges, and they're all talking about sports. And I guess I wonder how much that comes into the way you think about your lawyering day to day, is how much you think, I'm lucky to be in this club, I'm at the highest echelons, but I'm still having to do a whole bunch of stuff that I maybe wouldn't have to do if I was a guy.
1: So it's something that was on our minds all the time because we were in this courtroom, which was, they shut down the courthouse. This was the only thing going on in the courtroom. It was a windowless room. We were with these lawyers day in and day out for four weeks in a very kind of intense atmosphere. And there were two pro se plaintiffs, Spencer and Cantwell. So that's Richard Spencer and Chris Cantwell, right. both of whom were my who yeah. acting as their own lawyers, and so made it even more complicated and difficult. And I have to admit, like as the trial went on, certain of the lawyers, including Jim Kalanick, who really at the end of the trial kind of admitted to us, I think he made it a, a date, I don't know if it's happened, to go to the Holocaust Museum with Anne Levine, one of the lawyers on the case, Really, were like the reasonable people we dealt with every day. So when the judge would say to us, as always happens in any case, like you have to go work this out, they were very helpful. Clinic and this another lawyer in the case, very helpful in trying to wrestle the herd of just wildcats. They had to wrestle on their side. At the end of the trial, this is really interesting. Karen and I kind of switched positions because. You know, it's very typical. It's like a basketball game, to use a sports (laughs) analogy. At the end of a trial, you know, after you've gotten the verdict, you shake hands with the other side. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to shake hands with the lawyers, but I'm not shaking Chris Canwell or Richard Spencer's hand. And Karen did. And I remember, and that's her choice. and It totally makes sense to me. But I remember I was like, I'm drawing the line here. I mean, Chris Canwell, of course, has directed a lot of threats against me. So that would have been nuts. But Richard Spencer, as the trial went on, like he was, people were yucking it up with him and... I think he was like, kept saying to us how much he respected us and yada, yada, yada. And I was like, I'm sorry, there's a line I won't cross here. And Richard Spencer, at least, is that line. And to, to what extent was it gendered? I mean, that's really an interesting question. So this case was different in that the two lead lawyers were two women, neither of us was probably taller than 5'5", five, five, if
0: right. that. And one of them is gay, which sent some of the defendants into orbit. Like, yeah. I think that was just...
1: Well, it's the Jewish. The Jewish. Jewish here more than the gay. Both Jewish. The judge is a really did the best job he possibly could, but he's an older, he's in his 80s, Southern, Southern guy. Southern yeah. guy. And I felt what you described earlier in a lot of courts and a lot of cases about the guys can yuck it up in ways that are very exclusive and how do you kind of get into that club. And I've spent a lot of time in my career thinking about that. Here, you didn't really have to, because the judge wasn't really yucking it up with the Nazis. Yay, judge. (laughs) And I think, honestly, at the beginning, one of the lawyers in his opening made a just thoroughly obnoxious statement about, you know, these New York lawyers came down to try this case. and. Afterwards, the same lawyer came up to me and thanked me, believe it or not, for Windsor. And I said to him, like, you know what you just said? You know what New York lawyers means? You understand? That's a reference to Jews. He claimed he didn't know. But I do think that at the beginning of the case, there was a sense, who are these quote-unquote New York lawyers coming down into Virginia to do this case? Even on the part of the judge and the court staff, certainly on the part of the marshals, for sure. I think by the end of the trial, they were all our fans. The marshals really changed during the day. They were very resentful at the beginning that they had to do this trial. I understand that. They closed down the courthouse. It was a huge amount of work for them, overtime, everything else. Massive
0: security question. Correct.
1: Okay. By the end, though, I had Marshall saying to me, like, I'm going to stand right next to you when Chris Cantwell's testifying because I don't know if you want him to look at you. So there really was this sense by the end that that they got what we were doing and they appreciated it. So this is my last question,
0: and it's my meta question. I have truly got 30 more questions for you, but I do understand that this is not a mini-series. But my last question is that you are at pains in the book, in interviews, to say, Dahlia, I am not a radical. I am the most, like, small-c conservative attorney you will ever meet who's trying to do justice work. But One huge through line in the book is all of these women lawyers who are in love with an institution that does not always love them back. That, in fact, as you and I are taping this, thanks to the law, thanks, Sam Alito, Lindsey Graham is talking about passing a a federal abortion ban around the country. So, I guess all of the women in this book, live on this theme of knowing that the law is what makes us freer. It gives us dignity. It gives us liberty. The reason you and I are sitting at this table is all of the women who came before who clawed their way through the legal system to make a place for women. And at the same time, the law is taking things away from us every second, and that Sam Alito writing in Dobbs is citing 400-year-old precedent from witch burners and saying women aren't in the Constitution. And I guess I want you to just think through with me the weirdness of the last six years, where if you and I had been talking six years ago, pre-Trump, pre-Dobbs, pre, you know, lock her up as a theme of what we do to women in America now, we would be saying, we're so close. Equality is coming. We've got near parity in law schools. Women are achieving in every way. Look at all the women deans of all the law schools. Right? We were right there. We could see it. For sure.
1: And now I feel as though we're moving. I remember when we thought we were going to get Scalia's seat. Yeah. I remember where I was. I remember talking to Pam Carlin about it and being elated. Yeah. How naive and silly I was. At it the time. was
0: all happening. And now, that same apparatus that we call the law that we're in love with and we've dedicated our lives to is letting women bleed out on the table before they can get an abortion. So, I guess I want to ask you this incredibly unfair question, which is how do we live on this seam of both kind of loving and trusting this institution and knowing that it is capable of, and in fact, at this moment,
1: is doing? such profound harm? So for me, I think I have to live with successfully engaging in a form of self-hypnosis almost all the time. I can't do my job the way I do my job unless I believe in the institutions and the structures in which I litigate, in which I represent clients, the courts, etc. And for me, there's something unique about that in the sense that I was able myself to win a case at the Supreme Court that very much is under threat right now, but that created legal recognition of my own family. So there's a real personal aspect to this for me that exists for other people, but not tons of other people, not tons of other lawyers. So I guess like all of life, frankly, you have to live with the balance. You have to live with the good and evil that exists all the time. They clearly go in historical waves. I never thought growing up that I was going to be living in what I would call historic times where so many things that we hold dear are under threat. I never thought I'd be living in a world in which Ukraine and Russia were at war. It's inconceivable what we are. And for me, the way I deal with it, honestly, is to just keep fighting. But I have to admit there are times when I'm like, it's crazy because I've been litigating all these cases for the past four years, six years really now. And coming to work every day, ready to fight, and I kind of don't let it get to me. For some reason that I'm not exactly sure about, the judge's decision on the special master and the, on the Mar a Lago search warrant. The c- really, Judge Cannon? Yeah, Judge Cannon really got me down. Like I was down for a good two, three days about that decision because I just thought it was so contrary to precedent and so kind of made up in terms of the way she interpreted the law but I got over it. The depression lasted for a couple days and I got over it and I'm ready to fight again. I don't know any other way to do it. I, there may be better strategies, but it's the only strategy that I know. Eugene
0: Carroll, toward the end of your chapter, is quoted as saying that she doesn't have to be all that brave because you're brave for her. And I certainly feel like you're very brave for a lot of us. And I think that one of the things I've been trying to work out in this book is why there is such a kind of special relationship between women and the law at this moment. And I think that maybe a version of what you're saying is that on the other side of the curtain is just chaos and violence. I mean, it's not perfect and it's not even necessarily trending the right way for us, but it's not like there's some better machinery out there. And like, I don't know that we do all that well out on the streets with our fists.
1: Absolutely correct. I mean, so I was, believe it or not, a Russian history major in college, (laughs) history and literature to be precise. And I spent my junior year in college in what was still then the Soviet Union, but Glasnost had just been announced. And during that, it was about six month period, I experienced another world and another way of organizing a country that scared the living shit out of me. And I think in a lot of ways was probably the most profound influence in the way I look at the world. Um, You know, there were bugs in our classrooms. I was friends with all these people who weren't being permitted to leave the Soviet Union. It was very much the old communist regime starting to change, but as we all know, that change didn't last very long. And so I think what you said, Dalia, is exactly the way I think about it. Like this... The law and courts and even our Constitution, that is, really feels like it's on life support right now in certain respects, are what hold us back against chaos. And the chaos is horrifying. Robbie Kaplan is founding
0: partner of Kaplan, Hecker & Fink, LLP. She's probably best known for successfully defending Edie Windsor in United States versus Windsor. She is Chapter 4 of Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. She is also, I am blessed to say, a dear friend. Robbie, it is such, just a treat to hear you talk and also to just get, even when you say you're depressed for two days, you're like jacked up to 20 from where I've been. So it is really,
1: really. Well, you're one of the people, I think we turn to each other to get over. Yes, business.
0: yes. And we have a two-day limit. I think we have a <laughs> sell-by two-day sulking period. Robbie, thank you for being with us. Thank you. That is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you so much for supporting our show. And thank you for supporting the book, Lady Justice. Thank you for your letters and your questions. You can always keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. And Ben Richmond is senior director of operations for podcasts at Slate. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus next week. Until then, take good care.